I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Have you seen Oppenheimer, you masters of war, Mr. Ruta handing over F-16s to Zelensky in a losing war, which might very well turn the tide all right, the tide between conventional and a nuclear confrontation between the superpowers. The Russian army is advancing unstoppably towards Kupiansk, the Ukrainian army fleeing, has blown up the bridge over the river as they fled. Kupiansk is about to change hands for the fifth time in a hundred years. I hope you're ready to die and see all around you destroyed forevermore, over which side of a line Kupiansk should lie on in the map. And one, Peter Wilby, will be attracting my attention for a few minutes, at least, for that is all he deserves. But he does deserve that for reasons you'll swiftly grasp just as soon as I have finished talking. And we'll be speaking about satraps. You thought Britain was the ultimate cuck, the ultimate satrap of the United States empire? You haven't looked at Australia once fair, I'm afraid, now foul. And we'll be talking about the latest of our alumni to appear before the Security Council of the United Nations. Four of our people have now been there. Danny Haifong is the latest, and he will tell us all about it here on the mother of all talk shows. Fasten your seatbelt. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. The mass murderer of seven little newly born children in England in a National Health Service hospital by an NHS nurse has captured the imagination and horrified the people of this country over the last three years, for that is how long this trial, this legal process has lasted. I say at least seven, because there is the possibility that this young woman, whose name I don't intend to mention, has killed hundreds, and maybe even more than hundreds. This young woman may be the greatest mass murderer in British history because they are now investigating all of the newly born children who died, most of them entirely unexpectedly, whilst in hospitals in which she was an NHS nurse. There's not much more that I can say about her. The only question is, should we pay taxes to keep her presumably under maximum security, for the rest of her life, which may be a very long time in a maximum security jail? Or does this person deserve capital punishment? I myself am opposed to capital punishment, and I guess even in the teeth of this case, I remain so. But if ever there was a case for capital punishment for a mass murderer of newly born babies in maternity units, in labor wards, in the ICUs of English hospitals, it surely would belong 
to her. If ever there was a return of capital punishment, it's interesting to see what people think should be the kind of murder that warrants it. We're running a poll right now. Should child murderers face the death penalty? It's an enormous response. Almost 20,000 people have voted already. Get your vote in. More importantly, in a way, is that a number of doctors warned the executives, the NHS managers, of these bizarre deaths that seem to occur every time this particular nurse was on shift. The motives of this woman can only be speculated on. Some of them are very dark indeed, but what were the motives of the managers in refusing to act when clinicians, doctors, told them they were suspicious of this young woman and did nothing about it? When will their heads roll, professionally speaking, metaphorically speaking? It's a big issue that hasn't yet had enough attention. Now, I went to see Oppenheimer the other night. First of all, it is a masterpiece of a movie, and there's not much more I can say about it. Filmically, cinematically, it is simply unmissable. You cannot call yourself interested in contemporary and historical events, particularly the danger of world war and nuclear war and not go to see Oppenheimer. It is a dazzlingly brilliant film, but I'll leave it to the arts and culture critics uh, to analyze it more closely than that. My main point that I want to bring to your mind is that nobody who watched Oppenheimer could possibly support the continued escalation and ratcheting up of the confrontation between the United States and Russia. You would literally have to be insane. You'd have to be in Ward 5 in Broadmoor to view with equanimity the sight of Zelensky sitting in the cockpit in Amsterdam of an F-16 American fighter jet, nuclear capable. You would have to be insane to view with equanimity the boasting by Zelensky today with Ruta, the runt that runs the Netherlands for now, before he leaves politics entirely in just eight weeks' time. His parting gift to the world is to make a, an escalation in the war that may very well be the opening of the final chapter of humanity. I'm not exaggerating. Because, as someone once said, every shadow is a bird of prey to the small animal who falls underneath it. Every F-16 will be regarded, should be regarded, by Russia as capable of nuclear attack on her. After all, you could hardly take a chance on that, could you? How do you know if it's a storm missile only that is hurtling towards you? How do you know that cruise missile is not tipped with a nuclear warhead which if you don't respond will be capable of annihilating your ability to respond. Do you see what I'm saying here? I pointed out to someone this very afternoon 
down by the river. Finland to Russia is the width of that river. If you fire a missile from Finland towards Russia, who is going to hesitate over whether that missile is going to kill 500 or 500,000 of your fellow citizens? I want you to watch Oppenheimer. I want you to watch the detonation of the nuclear bomb that exploded first in Hiroshima and the second a few days later on Nagasaki. And I want you to think about this fact that every single nuclear weapon in the world today is 1,000 times more powerful than that one on the screen behind me. Not twice as powerful, 10 times or 100 times, but a 1,000 times more powerful. Each one, a 1,000 times more powerful than that bomb which annihilated in seconds 70,000 people like that, annihilated them, and then killed more slowly another 130,000 people after the radiation and the other effects of that bomb, 1,000th of the power of any single bomb in the armories of nuclear weapons states this day. It won't be 200,000 who die in London or who die in Leningrad, St. Petersburg. It will be millions. It will be everybody once the weapons start flying. So... Of course, I'm cursing the masters of war here. But I'm also cursing you, the public of the United States, of the United Kingdom, of the Netherlands. Where are the mass demonstrations in the Netherlands at this criminal escalation that took place today? Nobody gives a toss. Nobody's watching Oppenheimer. Nobody has any idea or care about what the impact of these weapons will be. The end. Do you understand me? Capital letters. The end. Because, of course, once one flies, the others must ineluctably fly. You can't call a halt to a nuclear war. What are you going to say? Well, we've lost 17 million people and and you've lost 17 million, let's not fire any more. It doesn't matter if you fire any more because the radiation will kill you all from the ones you've already fired. It doesn't matter if you're in a bunker. What are you going to emerge from that bunker into what kind of world? What kind of nuclear winter? I was watching with my kids this afternoon a documentary on the dinosaurs. They say, might be right, might not be right, a meteor hit the earth and wiped out all the animals, wiped out all the dinosaurs that had been ruling the roost for millions of years. Think thousands of meteors landing on your cities. As you can tell, I'm highly exercised by this point. Not for myself. I'm old. I'm ready to meet my maker. Not even for my own family because we are religious believers. We believe that we will all be together again one day, but how can it possibly be other than a work of Satanism 
to willfully destroy everybody and everything for the sake of Kupiansk? Seriously? Fasten your seatbelt. It's going to be a bumpy night. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. The fourth guest lecturer at the Open University of the Airwaves, the mother of all talk shows, has just appeared before the United Nations Security Council. It's extraordinary how this university is making progress. He's a young man and a brilliant one too. Danny Haifong joins us now. Danny, welcome. Uh, Fresh from what I hope was a triumph. I haven't watched it yet, uh, but I'm sure it was a triumphant appearance at the United Nations. Tell us what you said there and what they said back to you. Well, thanks for having me back on, George. It's always a pleasure to be on your great program. So what I said during my briefing to the United Nations Security Council on the question of the dangers that Western armaments to Ukraine pose to global peace and stability was that the conflict in Ukraine is simply being escalated by the fact that the United States and NATO countries have committed so much militarily to Ukraine in complete contravention of the UN Charter and in doing so have caused just a great deal of damage, not just to Ukraine, which is in the third month of this counteroffensive, which has seen over 43,000 Ukrainian forces killed, thousands of pieces of NATO uh, armaments destroyed, but also to the United States, Europe, and Europe and NATO itself. These countries are in free fall. There is an economic crisis across the world, and it's particularly hitting the U.S. and Europe quite hard. And the military situation for these countries is also pretty dire, considering the fact that now you have, and I cited the fact that there are officials that come straight from NATO, that come straight from these hawkish think tanks, that are all admitting that not only is Ukraine unable to win this conflict against Russia, but Also, NATO countries, including the United States, are suffering mightily in terms of their ability to supply the weapons that Ukraine supposedly needs to win. So, in effect, this is a losing battle that the United States and NATO are engaged in and that it is in the interest, really, of everyone to stop. And it's only Russia and China also that are calling for, as permanent members of the Security Council, a real negotiated settlement to this conflict. And that is the irony. In terms of the response, though, the UK delegate, the French delegate, they were the most uh, flustered by my remarks. Uh, The UK delegate called me a fringe journalist, while the French delegate claimed that Russia was simply calling the meeting in order to spread its propaganda. Mind you, all of the delegates from the collective West, the US, UK, France, and as well as you could call extensions of the collective West, such as Japan, they all couldn't stop promoting Cold War talking points against Russia, politicizing the conflict, politicizing 
the UN Security Council and making it all about how Russia not only needs to stop its so-called invasion, but really how Russia needs to be destroyed. This is the way they talk about this conflict, and it just goes to show which side they really are on. They are on the side of permanent war. It's a paradox, though, Danny. If you read the, the more serious of the newspapers, magazines, listen to the more serious commentators, they're all saying now uh, that the war is all but lost. And yet the, the yellow press, which is for the consumption by the masses, uh, continues to talk nonsense. Uh, about uh, Russia losing hand over fist and so on. And the politicians ride that particular horse rather than the one in the more serious papers. So on the principle that throwing good money after bad uh, is a bad idea, uh, even for a fool, uh, and, uh, and reinforcing failure is uh, a well-known foolhardiness, how come we're still doing it? Why did the Netherlands uh, up the ante today spectacularly uh, by effectively handing over their Air Force and their F-16s to Zelensky? Well, and this is despite the fact that those F-16s are probably not going to get off the ground for another year, given what the United States has admitted about the training that is necessary to make these operable on the battlefield. So. The reason why the collective West cannot seem to get out of its own way here and the reason why they're not listening to, I mean, the Pentagon said before the counteroffensive started, this probably isn't going to go well. The CIA admitted the same about the counteroffensive. And now you have articles coming out in the Washington Post today. You had a couple of days ago in Politico all saying that the counteroffensive is not only lost, but maybe they should have listened. Maybe the Biden administration should have listened to Mark Milley, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, when he said back in November of last year that perhaps there needs to be a negotiated settlement to this conflict because the future does not look bright for Ukraine. But the reason why these countries, why Europe, why this block of countries, these unipolarists, I would call them, the United States in the lead, continue to go down this path is because a conflict with Russia, a war with Russia is really existential for the U.S. foreign policy establishment and the uh, mega corporate forces, especially the military industrial complex that control them. They see this as a conflict that must be fought at some level. And now they're just starting to understand that this whole notion that some kind of offensive is going to bring Russia down or take back territory is a moot point. But even their calls for so-called uh, settlement or negotiation really just amounts to a freeze or what NATO has tried to push to Ukraine, which Ukraine rejected wholesale, is NATO membership for Ukraine while Ukraine cedes the fact that it's going to have to give up the territory that Russia has won. This is a non-starter for Ukraine, and not only this, but the only so-called peace settlement that uh, the West really uh, supports is a complete loss for Russia, is Russia's uh, defeat. And that's just not going to happen. So there is this existential crisis for the collective West where they need, they feel they need so badly to bring down Russia and what Russia represents as part of this rising multipolar world but their means of doing it through a proxy war in Ukraine is just not working out. So it is quite the conundrum, and it's not one that they're going to be able to resolve lest they either admit defeat or they continue going down this path of destruction they've set for themselves. Well, the, the, the heavyweight press talk in terms of, uh, of a freezing of the conflict, uh, of a Koreanization of the conflict drawing a parallel somewhere, and uh, neither war nor peace uh, being uh, the state of affairs thereafter. But why would Russia agree to freeze the conflict uh, and allow those parts of the Ukraine that they have not yet taken uh, to become, uh, like South Korea, a super-armed 
NATO encampment. It's bad enough they're in Finland across the river. Uh, why would the Russians agree to any such freezing of the conflict? As, as a matter of fact, every day that goes by, and I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show, there's a wholesale uh, described in the media I just read as unstoppable Russian advance towards Kupiansk this evening. Every day that goes by, the price of a negotiated settlement rises very steeply in terms of territory and other uh, Russian demands, denazification, demilitarization, and so on. I don't see this ending in a Korean style uh, ending. I, I see it ending more in a Vietnam style ending with, the, with, the, with NATO clambering off the roof of the, of the American embassy trying to get a place on the last helicopter out of Kiev. What do you think? Well, I think you're really onto something, George, because to be honest, the so-called Koreanization opportunity was lost after the Minsk Accords were completely and utterly trashed and destroyed by NATO itself, by the United States and NATO itself. It was they who used the Minsk Accords, who used this ceasefire agreement to build up Ukraine to the point of the time of the uh, so-called invasion that Russia started. Uh, throughout that period, throughout that eight-year period, it was the United States and NATO militarizing Ukraine, getting it ready, and also violating the accords at every step by continuing to shell and bomb and attack the Donbass. And that's why this conflict is currently at the stage that it's at. And so you bring up a really good point in conjunction with this, because not only does Russia have this experience of knowing what it's like to negotiate with the collective West and being burned by that. There's, there, there's no trusting the collective West. But now you also have the fact that Russia is the one succeeding on the battlefield. Russia is the one that has the capabilities, that has the ability to continue to fight a war of attrition. It is not facing the severe shortages that the collective West is, and it is making headway on the battlefield. It has stopped this offensive. This Ukrainian offensive is all but defeated. So there is no reason for Russia to give any leverage to the collective West when it knows that doing so means that it's going to have to give concessions that it cannot allow to stand. It cannot allow Ukraine to be a part of NATO. It cannot allow Ukraine to be militarized in this way. The precedent had been sent in 2000, had been set in 2014 during the coup, but really uh, over the last 15, 20 years when NATO was encircling Russia, we can go back 30 plus years, encircling Russia, moving up to its border, and of course Ukraine being on Russia's border, that being the red line that sparked this entire conflict. So there really is no reason, as you said, George, to enter into peaceful negotiations without the uh, goodwill and good faith of the collective West in giving concessions to Russia that it has been asking for from the beginning, that its security interests are respected, and there is no real hope for that. And I think Russia understands this. That's why Russia says very firmly, we're not going to be negotiating with Zelensky or the Ukrainian government. We're going to negotiate with its masters. And only when its masters in the collective West are able to begin to forward a position that allows for Russia's existence and its interests to be respected just like international law really does put forth quite clearly that in times of conflict, there needs to be good faith and goodwill in any kind of maintenance of this peace and stability that we also seek. But that has not been the case since the very beginning. And all the naysayers out there always like to forget and they always like to erase the fact that this conflict began in 2014 with the coup and then with the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of ethnic Russians and Russian speakers and people in the Donbass residing along Russia's border being attacked and terrorized by the Ukrainian government, the Ukrainian regime backed by the U.S. and NATO. Let's, uh, in the last few minutes, uh, look at the slightly bigger picture. Uh, I, I was reading today uh, not only the point that you made about these self-harming even suicidal sanctions that uh, the collective West 
uh, has ha has placed on Russia, which have turned out to be a gigantic uh, boomerang. Uh, but the uh, the cementing of now an unbreakable relationship between Russia and China, the precise opposite of U.S. foreign policy goal uh, since 1972 and uh, President Nixon's visit, the first communique and so on, the point of American policy from 1972 onwards was to keep Russia and China as separate as possible. Now, they have made this great leviathan uh, of Russia-China. You can say it in almost as, as one word, Russia-China. Uh, they've made this gigantic leviathan, uh, which will surely be uh, the core of this Eurasian, Eurasian future of which we talk. It's a spectacular foreign policy blunder by the West, isn't it? And was there any sign at the United Nations that any of them even have begun to realize that? No, not at all. Actually, the United States in particular, but really the collective West as a whole, is on this suicide mission to try to galvanize any country within the global South, within the Sphere, Eurasian sphere, and also in Africa as well, in Latin America, any country it can, and try to organize them against Russia and China as if that militarily is actually going to meet the objectives that the United States has set forth um, at the moment. The reality is, is that China and Russia, of course, have their own independent political and economic reasons for developing a strong relationship. The Cold War was a disaster in large part because those two countries were split politically and then, of course, economically. Now, the interesting thing that is occurring is that when the United States, when the collective West go after Russia and China simultaneously, what they are really admitting to is the fact that they can't break the bond that despite any attempts to uh, forge some kind of foreign policy that, um, that uh, uh, is coherent and that targets a specific quote-unquote enemy, that by labeling Russia and China as kind of equal players in the so-called threat category, what, it, what the U.S. is admitting is that no longer can it compete and no longer can it allow Russia and China to stand independent, sovereign, and united. But the more that it goes after both of these countries, of course, the more they are going to come together because they share an external enemy now. So this is quite the conundrum. It is one that is not going to go away. It is one that is kind of inevitable at this point because the United States and its NATO allies cannot afford to get close to either Russia and China for both political and economic reasons. And it's so interesting that in this moment when we're talking about the United States as kind of this declining empire, that you have this very clear set of lines being drawn where Russia and China are supposed to be the so-called enemies in the United States, but the only thing that could possibly save the United States from itself in foreign policy terms is by trying to divide the two. So that's why you have competing strategies that really end up coming together and forming one foreign policy objective, and that is the destruction of both. And the fact of the matter is that the United States, nor its so-called allies, have any capability to do such a thing. China and Russia alone, standing alone, are powerful enough. Russia has shown it in Ukraine. China has shown it with its immense economic growth and its ability to cooperate with damn near everybody in the world. Russia, of course, not so close behind in that realm. These countries alone are able to stand up to the United States and the collective West. Together, they make up a force that is the leading one in multilateral, multipolar developments like BRICS, like SCO, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, like, of course, the Eurasian projects of Belt and Road Initiative, Eurasian Economic Union, all of these projects really flash to us 
the future of the world order and the United States and the collective West by not being able to flexibly maneuver the international arena to meet its own interests is really admitting and showing the world that in fact it really has no other cards to play, that it's either going to pursue this endless war, which could very go nuclear against these two countries, or it is simply going to um, you know, uh, grind up into dust and float away in the wind, which is kind of what's happening right now, because the United States is fighting itself and its NATO allies are finding themselves on the outside looking in on all of these multipolar developments. And that is only going to make it more and more belligerent. So the writing is on the wall, and that is very clear to see when it comes to how the U.S. approaches Russia and China. But there's none so blind as those that will not see. Danny Haifong, who can see very clearly. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Uh, how's the poll going? Should child murderers face the death penalty? Almost 20,000 people have voted. And pretty convincingly, people say yes. Let me take a quick break. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Well, we lost our second guest, as you'll have seen. It's a long way down under. It's also the middle of the night. Uh, but the technical difficulties were insurmountable. We'll try and get them back for a subsequent show. That means, though, that uh, the rest of the show is yours. Uh, so get calling. Uh, we've got uh, two lines open. Uh, and uh, let's see who makes it. John in South London. He's up first. Go ahead, John. Hi there. Yeah, um, I just wanted to raise the issue of um, actually the democracy that we even live in because... Um, there's no primaries in the UK. Um, I've never really heard anybody talking about this. Um, don't you think this is something that really needs to be pushed? Obviously, America has it. Um, the UK doesn't. This, to me, yeah. seems like the bedrock yeah. issue that we've got. There's no primaries. If we had primaries, open primaries, you'd be able to run as Labour against these, these clowns, and you'd win. Well, I, I long advocated that when I was in the Labour Party. Uh, I, I was in the Labour Party for 36 years, but I've now been out of it for 20 years. Uh, so that tells you how old I am and what age I was when I joined. Uh, but I always advocated it as a means of mandatory reselection. We had to fight so hard uh, to be allowed to vote on who should be the Labour candidate uh, in an election. Uh, uh, and that was just the members voting. Uh, but I argued, why don't we let the public choose who should be the Labour candidate in an election, just like they do in the United States. Even the president has to win the primary before he can be the party's candidate uh, in the upcoming election. Uh, so I, I do believe you're on to something, but of course the political parties will never agree to it. And so uh, in a way it's pie in the sky. Uh, we'll have to find another way. And that means uh, vote. You see, uh, you say I would win it, John. Well, why wouldn't I win it if I stood as an independent? Why wouldn't I win it if I stood for my own party, the Workers' Party? Uh, why... Why do I have to be the Labour candidate to win it? What's so good about Labour? As a matter of fact, Labour, to me, is so utterly toxic now. I'm ashamed that I tried so hard to stay in it when they were expelling me uh, 20 years ago. And the money I spent on lawyers and so on trying to stay in it. Uh, and the, uh, the fight I put up, I, I don't know why now, because... Once Tony Blair drowned Iraq in blood and drowned the British political system, uh, choked it out of any credibility that it once had, there was no longer any point in being in the Labour Party. And uh, if that were true then, it's certainly true under uh, Keir Starmer. Last word to you, John. Third parties can't win. 
that's the uncomfortable reality that I've, I've realised that is no one's really third parties can't win because people don't want to split the vote. We need to get numbers in the streets, get out there and say we want a primary now. That's it. There's no negotiating because third parties can't win. Well, uh, yeah, RFK but, recently, but Starmer, Starmer is is literally rigging Labour selection. He's removing. Look at the the mayor in the northeast of England, an exemplary fellow, hugely popular. The elected mayor wasn't allowed on the ballot to be the Labour candidate in the upcoming election. Uh, these party leaders just do what they want. Who can stop them? We we have to we have to pressure them. Right. Keir Starmer cannot be pressured. That is pie in the sky. John, thanks for the call, though. Uh, look, we've got a good signal. Tony Kevin, Ambassador Kevin, is on the line. Hallelujah. Let's go to him yes, now. Good. Ambassador, good thank morning, you George. for that. Now, now everything is very clear. Good morning to you. Given the hour, I'll press on quickly, Excellency. There was two things I wanted to ask you, although one uh, additional P.S., let me deal with the first one. Uh, Australia, how did it become such a slavish servant of the United States government thousands and thousands of miles away that it is prepared to risk war with its major trading partner and relatively near neighbor, China? How did that happen? When did it happen? George, many books will be written about this. It's partly history and it's partly bad luck. Um, the history is that since World War II, Australia has, has been dazzled by American power and American glamour. Um, an American official who's unnamed uh, said, Australia's an easy lay. And I think that's a five-word answer to your question. We're an easy lay. Uh, as Americans see us, well, we, we uh, want to be like. Yeah, it's a it, it, to... it's it's a, it's a depressing enough uh, answer. Uh, it was bad enough when you you were an easy lay for us in uh, in Blighty, uh, but to be an easy lay for Joe Biden uh, is a recipe for dissatisfaction, if ever I heard one. Uh, but the 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 slavishness is so. Uh, against your own interest. I mean, if I was China, I'll tell you frankly, if I was the leader of China, I wouldn't buy another thing that is grown in or made by an Australian hand. I'd actually say, go to hell, Australia. Instead, they buy huge amounts of, uh, of your exports. This is all true. We have been deeply penetrated politically, economically, culturally, uh, psychologically by America over the last 20 or 30 years. We, we had a brief window of independence, of sovereignty from the time Gough Whitlam came to power to the time Paul Keating lost power to John Howard. In those 20 years, we were actually finding our home in Asia and establishing an identity for ourselves, a, a very attractive multicultural identity. But now we have timorously and, and timidly gone back into the American lager. And we, we, we don't need regime change in Australia. We're already deeply penetrated. And I have to emphasize this. I think much is the same is true of England, I, I would dare to say, and also of, of, of Germany. So, um, we have all gone back to lackey status, uh, to this strange globalist imperialist regime in Washington that doesn't seem to care that America is falling apart around it. They're, they're in their gated suburbs. They live very well, this little 1%. They want to rule the world, and Australia is just coming along, wagging its tail and saying, please sir, pat me on the head. What do you want me to do next? And that's where we are, unfortunately. The other issue uh, I wanted to talk to you about was Poland because of your expertise uh, in relation to that. As I was saying earlier, I have 
the, the, the reverse of animus towards Polish people. Uh, but I'm damn sure I'm not going to allow them to drag me into World War III. And there's a growing feeling, uh, in France especially, uh, but also in Germany and to some extent in the UK, that uh, countries like Poland, Romania another one, and these yapping uh, Baltic states are, uh, are driving the, the, the policy towards the Ukraine war, dragging Europe and NATO uh, into cataclysmic war. Uh, do, do you share that apprehension? And is there anyone in Poland? Is there any force in Poland that is equally apprehensive about it? I'm not quite as apprehensive as, as you are at this moment. I, I do think, although there is a, a fanatical Russophobia in Poland, and always has been, there's also an element of rationality. And when the Poles look and see how Ukraine has been destroyed by this war, I, I, I'm fairly confident in their ultimate common sense that they won't let the same thing happen to them because they must know that the same facts of, of economics and, and geography and the demographics apply to them in relation to Russia as applied to Ukraine. America had eight years to prepare Ukraine for war against Russia. America wanted Ukraine to go to war against Russia. They thought that Ukraine could win and establish some sort of dynamic towards regime change in Russia. They, they were wrong on every count. So why should they try it again with Poland? I, I don't think... I think there's enough rationality in Washington and Warsaw for this not to happen. And I think that the Ukrainian war will now drive itself to a tragic conclusion, and it really is a tragic conclusion. A, a fine country has been destroyed by their own faults and by the Americans' fault in abusing them uh, against Russia. And this is criminal behaviour. And I want to make a point here, George. It's a very important point. The Americans, I mean the, the globalist power elite in Washington, now see this war as a win-win for them because whatever they lose, and they don't lose anything, their military-industrial complex just makes newer and better weapons, the Ukrainians lose half a million people, half a million men. For the Americans of this particular frame of mind, it's win-win because... A dead Ukrainian is, is almost as good as a dead Russian, because if the Russians are going to take control of Ukraine anyway, the weaker you make Ukraine demographically and in terms of infrastructure, the less you're giving Russia at the end of the day. So um, there we go. Heads, heads we win, tails you lose. I'm sure this is the way Biden looks at it, and it's a horrible, evil way to look at it, but I believe this is the case. Now, finally, uh, I may say this has been a late interview and will therefore have to be a shorter one, but I'm mightily impressed by the quality of it, so we'll definitely ask you back. Uh, but briefly, if you will, given the hour, uh, I wanted to ask you about, if you like, a broader uh, question. I noticed that we both uh, approved of a statement that we saw on social media today. Uh, which, to paraphrase, said, you hate Russia because Russia is what you used to be, at least what you wanted to be, a cohesive society, uh, uh, a society where family values, where patriotic feeling, uh, where uh, a lack of uh, wokeness, if you like, to, uh, to cut to the chase, uh, a socially conservative country, which actually most people in most countries uh, want to be in. I'm talking to you tonight from uh, Serbia. I'm moving on tomorrow. But uh, here in Serbia, the same is true. Uh, and the people here feel that they are disliked by the globalists and their power centers uh, because like Russia, they are a country like we used to be. 
If I'm right in saying that you and I both uh, kind of endorse that uh, perspective, please say why. I'm glad to, and if you can give me a little time, I'll expand on this. I know Russia pretty well, and apart from my family connections in Australia, which of course are vital to me, my, my family ultimately is what counts for me, I, I, I feel more at home in Russia than I do in Australia at this moment. And that's a dreadful thing to admit. I, I find myself going back to English literature, back to 19th century Trollope. I'm really enjoying the Palliser novels at the moment. But even more recent English literature, the literature of the 1930s, Graham Greene, um, Aldous Huxley, Evelyn Waugh, I feel at home there um, precisely because of what you say. We, we, did, we were a society that had some pretty clear moral values, some pretty clear integrity. We're, we're, we're lost in confusion now. And um, Russia is, is standing for those things that we used to stand for. And I'm, and I'm very proud to say that. My book, Return to Moscow, which I wrote in uh, 2016, uh, uh, two years after Maidan, I didn't realize then what was coming, but in a kind of a way, I predicted all of this. It's a, it, it's a book that reading it six or seven years later now, and it's still available, really tells us something about the Russians. They're good people. They're noble people. They're an intelligent people. They're a courageous people. And we used to be all those things, but we've, we've got lost, George, and uh, I just hope we can find ourselves again. Amen to that. Uh, book that man, please, Chris, uh, for uh, the nearest available show. You're a terrific guest. I'm only sorry that we had these difficulties and therefore are short of time now. Thank you, Ambassador Tony Kenny, for coming you, uh, on the Thank show. Thank you. Uh, we've got time only for a couple of calls then. So Rex is in Seattle uh, on the US and Ukraine. Let's uh, hear from him, Rex. Welcome. Thank you, George. Uh, okay. Yeah. So, what you think the chances are for, um, you know, a viable debate between uh, Biden and RFK Jr. Um, and uh, also, uh, he's kind of he's kind of like the wild card, uh, maybe like a American, uh, like Prometheus for the Democratic Party, since it's so kind of cringe right now, mm. um, at least in my opinion. Uh, well, uh, then, it's a very good, uh, a very good question. And, um, you know, I think, I think like the state of the country is so kind of deranged right now where I don't think, uh, any real war would be in the country's interest, how kind of disorganized things are. In this country, like I don't know. Well, uh, of course, uh, uh, of course, uh, a war is not in the in the country's interest. Though there was a poll yesterday that showed two thirds of Americans think the U.S. should be doing more in its preparation for possible war with China. So the popularity of the Ukraine war against Russia is falling sharply. But two-thirds of Americans want to tool up uh, to get ready for a war with China. What is wrong with us? I say us because we are two countries divided by a common language, sure, but the one language we have in common is an apparent lust for conflict and war. Rex, thanks for the call. Melvin, always worthwhile. Is in New York. Let's hear from him. Melvin, go ahead. Hello, George. Nice to speak to you again. Uh, you hear me quite well? You. Very well. Very clear. Uh, all right. Thank you very much. Uh, so I'm going to make this short but sweet. So a few weeks ago, the United States Congress, all but 12 Democrats, or not Democrats, Republicans, 12 Republicans voted the Constitution of the United States down, okay? So this shows me that anything that we believed in the United States as Americans 
doesn't ring true to anything, you know, as far as our elections, if they can vote down the, the, the Constitution of the United States. We have, as far as Ukraine goes, there is a document that you can look up on Google. It's, it's declassified. It's uh, from the CIA. It dates all the way back to the 60s called Operation Aerodynamic. I suggest if anybody wants to know where this really all is going and where it's all started, read it. I have. Uh, on top of all of that, and I'll leave it with this, the only thing I see for the United States where we might actually be able to stop World War III, with, or at least us getting into it, is what's called the uh, uh, oh shoot, it's a uh, Convention of States. Uh, where anybody can sign up and petition it. It is the only thing I found that might oversee or overstep our politicians. Uh, well, what's I hope your so. Uh, I very much hope so, because uh, the presidential election doesn't look like uh, it's going to be any kind of opportunity to stop this headlong careering into oblivion. Uh, the last caller asked me if Biden will debate uh, RFK? Of course he won't, because Joe Biden would be immediately revealed to be a blithering idiot, not fit to be sent out to buy a loaf. Uh, so he cannot. But that won't make any difference. The majority of Democrats will pick him, according to the poll. And they look like they're going to put Donald Trump in prison if they don't terminate him with extreme prejudice. But even if they don't, they seem to have the capacity to rig the next presidential election as they rigged the last one. So if elections can't fix it, what can? Well, you've come up with one creative suggestion. Perhaps we need to look more deeply uh, into that. Email from Ben. Uh, dear George, no question from me tonight. Just want to say it looks like you've lost weight and the new suit is cracking. Kind regards, Ben. Thank you, Ben, for that. Uh, Kevwe Abinabe says, Tony Kevin, such a gentleman. George knows how to pick his guest. Well, you know what, Kevwe? Sometimes you immediately click with someone and I feel I immediately clicked with Tony. I didn't expect to. I had no expectation at all. But we'll definitely get him back. I think he's going to be very good value indeed. The poll closed at 21,267 people overwhelmingly voting to return the death penalty uh, for child murderers. Last call then, Josh in Phoenix, Arizona. How could I resist it? Not Jojo, but Josh in Phoenix, Arizona. Loves the show, has something to say. Go ahead, Josh. George, uh, thank you for being yourself. Yes, go ahead. Uh, much much appreciated. Uh, I place you I place you there with Tommy from your diplomatic wing from the show. <laughs> Tommy, we haven't heard from Tommy for weeks. I wonder where he is. Tommy in Glasgow. Call home. He was the diplomatic <laughs> wing. Yeah, you're right. Now tell me this: uh, how, how, what Phoenix, Arizona? I was thinking, mixing it up with Tucson, mm. uh, Arizona. But uh, Phoenix is such a magical name and such a magical image. What's the political situation on the ground in Phoenix, Arizona? Are they, uh, is that Joe Biden country? The, uh, yes and no. Depends on where you're at. Out in the, out in the, I work out in the suburbs of Phoenix. I live in Phoenix, but I work in the suburbs. I'll, I'll say it's a, you've got your neocons and then you've got your neoliberals. That's pretty much, so that's kind pretty of 50, much the 50, The sort of place where the ballot box might get stuffed at four o'clock in the morning when the lights <laughs> suddenly go out, that sort of place. I, yeah. Yeah. It depends on who's, who's, Who's there? The governor or the mayor? Who knows? Depends on who. <laughs> depends on who's ahead. I love you, John. Thanks for the call. Sorry that it has to be a very short one because uh, because of the technical difficulties we had. 
getting Tony Kevin on the line, uh, everything is thrown out and we are now fast running out of time. And if I go over the hour, I've got to pay everybody uh, out of my own pocket for extra time. And it, it makes the whole thing uneconomic if you get my uh, drift. We can barely uh, bring you this show as it is. Uh, so uh, please uh, forgive me if I uh, draw the show to a close now, but say that I think we uh, were treated to two good guests and many good calls and I hope a decent monologue which managed to convey just how strongly, how fearfully I am approaching this current situation. When I saw little Zelensky playing Top Guns with uh, Ruta, the Runter, in the Netherlands, uh, climbing into the cockpit of an F-16. The Netherlands, which entered recession this week, together with Germany, already in recession. Britain, desperately, frantically, scrambling to stay out of recession. Handing over its multi-billion dollar fleet of F-16s to little Zelensky, the showman, the former porn actor and dancer. It's a grim situation that our leaders are so reckless. And it's abundantly clear to me that these leaders cannot have watched Oppenheimer. I close as I began with a plea to you to see Oppenheimer and encourage everyone to see Oppenheimer. It doesn't matter if you like Oppenheimer or don't like him. Uh, if you agree with why he did what he did or if he even did what he did, that's not important. What is important is that the film manages to convey the sheer unadulterated horror of the atomic bomb, now of course long left behind by the hydrogen bomb and the thermonuclear hydrogen bombs that we have today, which as I said, are a thousand times more deadly. Russia has one missile, which is a multi-warhead missile. It's been dubbed in the Daily Mail, uh, Satan. I don't know what its Russian name is. But if Satan were to be launched from Kaliningrad, where it probably would be launched, uh, within eight minutes, that missile and its multiple warheads would be over at exactly the same moment. The cities of London, Birmingham, Manchester, Glasgow, and would literally incinerate everyone and everything in those cities and in all of the lands in between who would be destroyed in the white hot heat of the blast. And if not so destroyed, would perish in the nuclear winter lasting a thousand years that would follow the blast better by far to be in the epicenter of the blast than to die the death that would await those who survived that blast. And don't think you can save yourself under the stairs or under the kitchen table. Don't think even in a bunker you will be safe, either from the blast and certainly not from the radiation that would kill you with a sickness almost unimaginable to bear and to watch your children die from that same sickness if they were to survive somehow a blast from one rocket that took eight minutes to arrive and is traveling hypersonically and therefore cannot 
be intercepted, cannot be stopped. So it's a serious business. No one who leaves the cinema, especially if, like me, you were lucky enough to watch it on IMAX, nobody leaves the cinema laughing or even talking. We walked home in virtual silence from Oppenheimer. And uh, Killian Murphy is absolutely superb. You think he was great in Peaky Blinders? Wait till you see him as Oppenheimer. Thanks uh, very much. I've done it. I've gone over the hour. I've, I've just cost myself extra money. But I thought it was worth it to make the points I now have. Thank you for joining us. I hope to see you again on Wednesday at the slightly later time of 9pm UK time for the midweek edition of the Mother of All Talk Shows. Please bring somebody else with you, by which I mean tell somebody else about this show and why they have to watch it. Good night.